there are some things that you can just count on, right? Anybody ever heard of Old Faithful, the geyser? Anybody? Thank you. There are some things that are just sure, right? What goes up must come down. It's a whole different ballgame. It'll come down eventually somewhere. Have you ever counted on something that turned out to not be worthy of your trust? Has something ever surprised you that turned out not to be trustworthy? Has someone or something let you down after you trusted them or it? Now, check this out. I'm about to show a video. If you've seen this video, yeah, just bridle your enthusiasm. If you haven't, I'll apologize ahead of time for what you're about to see. But there's some really good points here where someone was counting on some things that turned out to not be so secure. Thank you for leaving my kayak alone. I'm going to pepper spray you in the face. That's what I'm going to do to you. Yeah, yeah. Maybe it was Yogi. <laughs> so it's really bad that we rejoice in somebody else's misfortune this morning as a corporate body, right? But I mean, what do you say? What do you say about that? I guess, okay, you're planning a kayak trip. She's in Alaska, okay? <laughs> There's some things that you can count on, things that you hope for, things that you put your security in. The first thing is you kind of hope that there won't be any bears on your trip to Alaska, right? You can hope that. That's not so smart because there's bears in Alaska, okay? Well, at least you can trust in your super-duper range anti-bear pepper spray to make sure that the bear will leave your campsite, right? Well... Strike two. Telling the bear to leave your kayak alone, that'll surely work, right? You can trust in that 
Can't you? No, obviously not. Oh, man. Reasoning with the bear that it's September 30th and that it shouldn't even be there. Now, surely you can put your trust in that, right? No. Sometimes it just feels like the whole world's gone crazy and bears are eating your kayak, doesn't it? Sometimes it feels like everything you've put your trust in has let you down, doesn't it? That's kind of where we are in Romans right now. The Holy Spirit through Paul is in the process of tearing down every sense of security we have in our ability to please God. Pagans, moral folk, even Jews can't trust themselves or their peculiarities to save them. Today, we'll take that another step or two further. What else might we have? What else might we be trusting that's not sufficient to help us be right with God? The laser focus of Paul and the Holy Spirit today turns to the law. The very law of God given to the Jewish people all those many years ago on Mount Sinai, written upon tablets of stone by the very finger of God. Surely, surely, there's some security in trusting that, right? Right? Let's see. Turn your Bibles to Romans chapter 2. We're going to read verses 17 through 29. We're not going to cover all that today. But it's, it's, it's kind of one piece, one thought pattern. So Romans 2 verses 17 to 29. <clears throat> Let's stand for the reading of the Word. That's something I want to be in a habit of doing, to show reverence. You're like, I've stood up and sat down and stood up and said, yeah, let's stand up again. I'll let, you I'll let you sit down at the end of it, okay? But if you call yourself a Jew and rely on the law and boast in God and know His will and approve what is excellent, because you are instructed from the law, and if you are sure that you yourself are a guide to the blind, a light to those who are in darkness, an instructor of the foolish, a teacher of children, having in the law the embodiment of knowledge and truth. You then who teach others, do you not teach yourself? While you preach against stealing, do you steal? You who say that one must not commit adultery, do you commit adultery? You who abhor idols, do you rob temples? You who boast in the law, dishonor God by breaking the law. For as it is written, the name of God is blasphemed among the Gentiles because of you. For circumcision indeed is of value if you obey the law, but if you break the law, your circumcision becomes uncircumcision. So, if a man who is uncircumcised keeps the precepts of the law, will not his uncircumcision be regarded as circumcision? Then he who is physically uncircumcised but keeps the law will condemn you who have the written code and circumcision but break the law. For no one is a Jew who is merely one outwardly, nor is circumcision outward and physical. But a Jew is one inwardly, and circumcision is a matter of the heart, by the Spirit, not by the letter. His praise is not from man, but from God. Let's pray. God, we have built many fortresses. We have taken many paths to try to assure ourselves before you. Today, God, would you break those down if they are false? Help us to see the false fortress, the wrong path that these people have taken so that we might not make the same mistake. God, help us to know your will, to do your will, and by the power of your Spirit, God, understand, hear, love, and do your will. We need your help for that, and we trust in it in Jesus' name. Amen. You can be seated. Okay. Let me back up real quick and look at where we've been so far to make sure we know the context of what we're looking at today. Please always remember, when you're reading, studying, anything in the Bible, context is king. And what I mean by that is, don't take something and pluck it out of where it's at and put your thoughts, your meaning into it. We could really mess this up today. We could really read this and really mess this up, but we've got to see where we've been, what Paul has done to this point. Now, we had the introduction. 
all these many weeks ago now. It actually hadn't been that long ago. But uh, Andrew preached the gospel, basically, in the first message uh, where Paul was saying, I'm Paul, you're the Romans, and I want to preach the gospel to you. Uh, then the following week we looked at uh, Paul saying, I'm not ashamed of the gospel, for it's the power of God unto salvation. And then he said what we said was probably could be taken as the theme of the whole book, which is the righteous shall live by faith. From there, the Holy Spirit through Paul set out to show us all the many different ways that people have fallen short of the glory of God, and we'll get to that in chapter 3. But he's taken these first three chapters and he's just showing that everybody is without hope in their efforts by themselves to be right with God. So we had the pagan person there in 18 through 32 of chapter 1, which was the long list of sins. They do this. They knew God, but they didn't see fit to acknowledge God. So that's the immoral, the, the, uh, the pagan person who might have some sense of religion, but really is trying it their way. I, heard, I read this week that the theme song in hell is, I did it my way. And that's exactly what these people are doing. They're casting aside God himself and saying, I don't need you. That was at the end of chapter 1. And then we saw after that, Paul turned his attention to moral people. Not people who are deliberately sinful, but people who are trusting in their morals. I'll be good enough to get into heaven. And Paul said, no, that's not going to work either. Then he looked at the religious. Last week we talked about uh, God giving the law to a certain group of people and with everybody else, God wrote His law on their hearts so that nobody has any excuse. And then today, we're going to look at very specifically Jewish people who have put their trust in the law of God. Now, remember back in the introduction, and that's something I didn't mention in our recap, in the introduction we said that there was probably a whole lot of confusion in the Roman church because the Jews had been expelled from Rome at one time and then this church got established and now there were probably Jewish people coming back in and there was probably a lot of friction. These Christians who knew nothing of Jewish customs had come to believe the gospel and you know they're, they're, they received Christ as their Savior, uh, they trusted in Him, grace alone, faith alone, and now these Jewish people are coming back in who are believers as well but they're still Jews and they still hold to Jewish customs, and they still, still do Jewish things. And so these Jews are coming back in, and they're saying, no, 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 wait a second. If you are going to be a follower, of, a follower of Yahweh, our God, you've got to do certain things. And I'm sure they started with the law. You've got to keep the law. And that's really what Paul is attacking here. We're going to start with verse 17, and we're only going to go through verse 24 today, I believe. Yeah. We'll do 25 through 29 next week. So next week, write it on your calendars. Next week is circumcision week. Okay, everybody get excited about that. If you don't know what circumcision is, you'll learn next week. We'll teach you. So let's look at 17 through 24. We're going to start in verse 17. But if you call yourself a Jew and rely on the law and boast in God. Now, Paul starts a long vein of thought here that's going to run through verse 20. And he's going to point out things that his readers may be placing their trust in. Bear pepper spray or kayaks not tasting good. Things that they may be finding their security in and hoping to be right with God as a result of trusting in these things. So from 17 to 20, that's what we're going to see. It's a long chain. Our passage starts, though, with what word? Come on, you can say, you can say it in church. You can say but in church. It's all right. But... So, we have to look back to see what this is being put up against. Remember back in verses 11 through 17, which is what we looked at last week, Paul was saying the law of God was both given to a group of people and written on everyone else's heart. So, in keeping with the reference to the law of God, which come out of 11 through 17, Paul turns his gaze directly to the Jewish audience that would read his letter. Everyone has the law in one form or another, but if you call yourself a Jew. So the prerequisite condition he's addressing here, the thing that they're putting their faith in to juxtapose against everyone having the law and being held accountable to the law is the very ones who have pride in knowing and saying 
that they have the law given directly to them. So Paul's addressing the Jewish people. There surely was a sense of security in being called a Jew. Why? At that time, the word Jew would incite national pride in the people of Israel. Though they had been conquered over the last 600 or so years by Assyrians, Babylonians, Persians, Greeks, and Romans, the Jews remained a fiercely proud and separate people from the cultures around them. And a lot of that was because of the law that they had received. Paul doesn't refer to them here as Hebrews. Hebrew would refer to their language more than anything else. He also didn't call them Israelites. If you call yourself an Israelite, that's not what he said. That would refer to their family heritage. No, he says, but if you call yourself a Jew, referring to their fierce national pride, we are the Jewish people. And the word Jew comes from a word that means praised, P-R-A-I-S-E-D. So the word Jew comes from a word that means praised, inferring that they were the praised people. Praised by themselves, praised by their neighbors, even praised in their minds by their God. How affectionately did God refer to them all through the Old Testament? Oh, Israel, my beloved, I've treasured you. I've made you my wife. So they felt like they were, and they have been, praised by God Himself. And there was some pride in that. Surely there was some security in that. Surely. Surely there was some security in them being called Jews. Then Paul mentions that they rely on the law. So they call themselves Jew and they rely on the law. For the Jewish people, one of the things that made them most distinctive from the peoples around them was the fact that God Himself had given them His law. Atop the fiery Mount Sinai, God Himself had given these Jews His direct commands for their civil, ceremonial, and moral laws. As God's people, they were given God's law. And surely they could put some confidence in that, right? And then He says that they, quote, boast in God. We're still in verse 17. This lends itself to the thought pattern that these people were openly and verbally proud of their deity, whom they would proclaim is the one true God. Now again, seems like something to take a lot of pride in. Seems like something that you would be able to put your confidence in, right? That's not all. Verse 18. And know His will and approve what is excellent because you are instructed from the law. So they're Jews... They rely on the law. They boast in God. What else? They, quote, know His will. Whose will? God's will. They know God's will. Now, if I'm seeking to have confidence before God, it would be a good thing to know God's will, right? It would seem natural to place your trust in knowing God's will, right? And then to approve what is excellent. Sounds great. If I could know the will of God and be able to approve or condone what is excellent, I would probably feel pretty sure of myself, pretty confident in my standing with God, I think. And the verse ends by giving the reason I could do those things when it says, because you are instructed from the law, which is a reference back to God's law that was given to the Jews. Paul is saying, but if you call yourself a Jew, rely on the law, boast in God, know His will, and approve what is excellent because you are instructed or taught from the very law of God, then what? Well, look at some of the results of these things in verses 19 and 20. And if you are sure that you yourself are a guide to the blind, a light to those who are in darkness, an instructor of the foolish, a teacher of children, having in the law the embodiment of knowledge and truth. That's verses 19 through 20. Here, Paul shifts from their personal conduct and privilege and points to what their place of prominence means for those who are not a part of their chosen race. They see themselves and are sure that they are a guide to the blind, a light to those in darkness. They see themselves as an instructor of the foolish. They see themselves as a teacher of children. So the Jewish people see that they have a responsibility to guide, to give light, to instruct, and teach those who are not of their same chosen standing. Now that's a good thing, right? I mean, 
if you've been tapped by God to receive His law, and not only to receive it, but also to teach it to other people, you are just waiting for the other shoe to fall, aren't you? You should be. God wanted them to be those teachers. He wanted them to be that light. He wanted them to be the guide. He wanted them to be the instructor. He wanted them to be the teacher. And they're saying, that's what we do, and that's a good thing. God wanted to put His holiness on display through His chosen people so that all the nations would see His glory and beauty and be drawn to Him. God said they would be a nation of priests, which means that they would mediate His Word and His presence to the world so that the whole world would know who He is. Surely this would make someone feel pretty confident toward God. Surely this, along with the statement at the end of verse 20, would give you some confidence. Having in the law the embodiment of knowledge and truth, surely that would lead these Jewish people to feel fairly confident in their confidence. Right? So is this what Paul's saying? Is he saying, well, nobody else can boast of confidence in their being right with God. Not the pagans, not the moral man, not the man who has the law written in his heart. Just you Jews who have the revealed law of God and teach it to others. You guys are okay. You can rest in your standing with God. Is that what Paul's saying? The answer is no. Afraid not. Now look at the sharp turn in these next verses, 21 through 23. You then who teach others... Do you not teach yourself? While you preach against stealing, do you steal? You who say that one must not commit adultery, do you commit adultery? You who abhor idols, do you rob temples? We'll get to that. That's a really neat thing, by the way, when we get there. You who boast in the law, dishonor God by breaking the law. Now, not only is this not an attaboy for the Jewish readers, it's actually a very plain-spoken condemnation of their confidence and a specific calling out of their behavior. Now he starts... Go back to the next he starts by appealing to them teaching. And they should have been teaching. They had the law of God given directly to them. As the ones who had God's law, they should have been teaching others. And they did but they weren't doing the things they were teaching others to do. Paul says, you who teach, do you not teach yourself? While you preach against stealing, do you steal? And the clear implication, the thought process here, the wording clearly implies you teach that people shouldn't steal, but you are stealing. And he's effectively labeling them practicing hypocrites. But he doesn't stop with stealing. You who say that one must not commit adultery. Do you commit adultery? Hmm. Obviously they were committing adultery. And if you go back to Jesus' words in Matthew 5-7, through 7, he said if you look at a woman with lust in your heart, you've committed adultery with her in your heart. So they might point and say, well, no, 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 I've never cheated on my wife or my husband or whatever. And Paul would refer back to Jesus and say, but what's going on with your eyes? What's going on in your heart? You who say you shouldn't commit adultery, obviously they were committing adultery. And then, you who abhor idols, do you rob temples? Now, what's that about? Now, it's easy to see from the first two of the Ten Commandments that Israel was to abstain from all forms of idolatry. You shall have no other gods before me. Don't make a carved image. Those are numbers 1 and 2 of the 10. And the phrasing in our passage says that they do abhor idols, but that they're robbing temples. Now, what's, what's that about? Look at Acts 19. Turn your Bibles to Acts 19. If you got a Bible. I don't have that up here, by the way. I'm going to read Acts 19, 35 through 37. Let me give you a little bit of background on what's going on here. Paul is in Ephesus, and there's this giant uproar in Ephesus because they're saying somehow that Paul and his companions have blasphemed Artemis of the Ephesians. 
and there's this big, giant uproar, and they take them before the city clerk, and they're saying, hey, these guys deserve something really bad because they've blasphemed Artemis of the Ephesians. So there's this mob. Now I'm going to read 35 through 37. And when the town clerk had quieted the crowd, he said, Men of Ephesus, who is there who does not know that the city of the Ephesians is temple keeper of the great Artemis and of the sacred stone that fell from the sky? Seeing then that these things cannot be denied, you ought to be quiet and do nothing rash. For you have brought these men here who are neither sacrilegious nor blasphemers of our goddess. Now, anybody have a different word than sacrilegious in their Bible? I've got ESV. Anybody? Let me tell you what that word means. The word for sacrilegious in verse 37 of Acts 19 is, now let me give you the Greek lettering. I don't know if I can pronounce it. H-I-E-R-O-S-U-L-E-O. Let me try that. Hierosuleo. I'm sure I butchered that. But that's what the word sacrilegious means. And it's exactly the word that Paul uses here in Romans for Rob's temples. You who abhor idols, do you rob temples? Are you sacrilegious? It's the only two times in the New Testament, in Scripture anywhere, that that word is used. H-I-E-R-O-S-U-L-E-O. And it means to be sacrilegious by robbing temples. That's literally what it means. Why would Paul put that in opposition to abhorring idols? So obviously, in research, this was a thing. Let me read you a quote by a guy, Dr. Paul M. Elliott. He writes this, According to historians, some Jews of the dispersion, and that just means Jews who had been dispersed by persecution, According to historians, some Jews of the dispersion actually made a self-righteous business venture of looting pagan temples and selling the idols or the precious metals of which they were made for profit. This was a direct violation of Deuteronomy 7.25 which says you shall burn the carved images of their, guard, of their gods with fire. You shall not covet the silver or gold that is on them nor take it for yourselves lest you be snared by it for it is an abomination to the Lord your God. That's the end of the verse quote. I'm still in the quote by Dr. Paul M. Elliott. Not only was this a violation of Old Testament law, it was also a violation of Roman law. Josephus and Philo both said that the word sacrilegious or robbing temples was a crime on a par with treason and murder in the Roman world, punishable by death. There was also a Roman law against stealing sacred books and monies from the Jewish temple promulgated by Caesar Augustus. But since Romans 2.22 refers to temples in the plural and has abhor idols as the antithesis, it is highly doubtful that Paul is asking Jews if they rob their own temple. However, the fact that Jews would rob pagan temples when even Roman law protected them against the robbery of their own temple would only add to their hypocrisy in the eyes of the Gentiles. End of quote. Now, get this Robin Hood mentality that they had. We're going to go into these pagan temples. We hate these idols. We're going to steal them. And then we're going to sell them and make us, make us some money. That was a thing in the Jewish community at the time. And Paul is here saying, you who abhor idols, are you making money off of idols? And again, the implication is, yes, you are. This is something that you are doing. So to put that in the context of our passage, Paul is saying, you who abhor idols, you act, you're actually sinning by first stealing them and then sinning by selling what you've stolen. Wow. Well, that's pretty bad, ain't it? Be careful. And then in verse 23, Paul sums it all up by saying, you who boast in the law dishonor God by breaking the law. In the ultimate paradox, Paul calls out these Jewish readers whose confidence is in their Jewishness and their being the law bearers and teachers by saying that the very things that they're boasting in and relying on is the very thing they are doing wrong. And instead of honoring God through keeping and teaching His law, they're actually dishonoring God by breaking that law. And if you're a Jewish member of the church in Rome and you're reading this, you are saying, ouch, 
ouch, double ouch. And then he finishes our passage today in verse 24. For as it is written, now get a hold of the bigness of this statement. The name of God is blasphemed among the Gentiles because of you. Not only are the Jews dishonoring God by breaking the law, but God's name is blasphemed among the Gentiles because of their law-breaking. The very opposite of God's design is occurring. Instead of God being glorified by Jews keeping and teaching the law, God's name is drugged through the mud as He looks disgusting to the nations who are supposed to be drawn to Him. The word blasphemed means in its simplest form to speak irreverently about. So because of the action of these Jews, the Gentiles speak irreverently about God instead of knowing Him as the beautiful treasure that He is. And he says, as it is written, the as it is written references from Isaiah 52, 5. And that says, Now therefore, what have I here, declares the Lord, seeing that my people are taken away for nothing, their rulers well, declares the Lord, and continually all the day my name is despised. Here, God is saying, since his people are disciplined and taken away, his name is despised among the nations, who in return say basically, I don't want their God. He obviously either can't deliver them or is so mad at them that he is punishing them. And we'll see this in another context in the application section, which we're heading to now. So Paul's whirling dervish of disarming and disgracing has spun its way all the way down to the individual Jew who has boasted in God's law but hasn't kept it. Not even the teachers of the law have a leg to stand on because they don't keep the very law they teach and proclaim on the path to showing that no one has any security or boasting in their ability to save themselves, Paul has blazed a very sure path and has effectively picked on just about everybody. Next week we'll see another step in that progression, but for now let's see how what we've looked at today applies to us. Anybody know the Veggie Tales song? Somewhere Bob the Tomato frowns because he hates that song, right? Remember the bear lady? Bear! Bear! Yeah, that lady. Now, remember we made fun of her for putting her confidence in a lot of stupid things and maybe a few logical things like the fact that bears don't eat kayaks. You would think that you would be able to put your confidence in that. Remember that all of her confidence and security proved to be false. Now, just like her, maybe not just like her, but a lot like her. These Jews had placed their confidence in this context for their standing with God in their heritage, their association with God's law, their boasting in God, and the fact that they were supposedly teaching and modeling the law of God to those around them. And Paul pulls the table right out from under them and says it is them and their behavior that is causing God to be blasphemed showing that their confidence and their security is all built on the sand. They were hearers and even teachers of the law, but they were not doers of it. So what does that have to do with us for our application? Anybody here Jewish? Anybody have a Jewish background? So we could pretty much just take this page out of our Bible and throw it away, right? We don't need it. We're not Jewish. Right? I don't think it takes a whole lot of ciphering to figure out how this applies to us. First, it has to be noted that just because you have heard the Word of God, just because you claim to know the Word of God, or even just because you teach the Word of God, that doesn't mean that you can just waltz into heaven assuming a right relationship with God. Hearing, knowing, or teaching the Word does not save you. Now we mentioned this a lot last week. It's the doers of the Word that are shown to be justified and saved. You can hear, know, and teach that it's wrong to steal, but if you're stealing, all the other makes no difference. Preach it as fiery and as passionately as you want to. 
If the Word is not producing a life of repentance and godly fruit in your life, please hear me say this, you don't know the God of the law that you are claiming as your own. Let me read that again. If the Word is not producing a life of repentance and godly fruit in your life, you don't know the God of the law that you are claiming as your own. And if you don't know Him, if your relationship with Him is not genuine, plain and simple, you are lost. Period. Now this hits home for me very simply. Let me explain to you. I find myself at work a lot, and I don't have much, if any, direct supervision. I'm in a trailer by myself almost a full eight hours a day. I don't have anybody standing saying, do this, do this, do this. Now that you finish that, do this. I've got a, a very long leash. And you know what it's real easy for me to do? It's real easy for me to do nothing sometimes. Facebook, Twitter, YouTube. It's real easy for me to do that. And nobody's going to stand there and say, what are you doing? Who's my boss? Most of the time, it's me. I'm not saying that I don't ever have to do things. Don't get that. Sometimes people intrude on my privacy. <laughs> so now, it would be real easy, and, and it is real easy, and sometimes I definitely do this. I don't do nothing. And nobody's the worse for it. But what am I doing? I'm stealing. I am stealing wages from my employer by doing nothing. And doggone it, I could stand right here Sunday by Sunday, pound this pulpit and say, you shouldn't steal. Shouldn't steal. Steelers, Pittsburgh, no. And then go to work tomorrow and steal for eight hours. It would be real easy for me to do. And again, I confess that to you. Confession brings salvation. I confess, man, there's a lot of times in my life I am prone to laziness at work, and it's stealing. Does that make me a hypocrite? It can definitely make me a hypocrite. And it's a razor wire. If I don't watch it, I'm going to fall into it. And to be a hypocrite discredits the name and person of God. And that's not okay. It's not only dangerous, Paul says in our passage, it's blasphemous. Now, let's circle on that a little bit. Let's get off the stealing thing. You who detest sexual perversity and decry homosexual marriage, and you should, do you drown in pornography? You who seek to defund Planned Parenthood, and you should, do you cast off single mothers who have nowhere to go? You who believe in the sanctity of life, and you should, do you turn a blind eye to refugees and immigrants? Now I know all those things are politically charged, but I'm asking you, what's your heart in them? What is the Holy Spirit saying? about these things. You who do this, do you do this? What's the Holy Spirit saying? Because that is more important than your party's platform. Don't be a hypocrite. Don't pretend to know and love God and teach His ways if your heart is dark and sinful. I don't care what your Facebook impression is. What's going on in your heart? Are you a doer of the Word or just a speaker or teacher of it? It is the doers of the Word who are shown to be justified and saved. That's the first point of application. Second is along the same thought pattern. We cannot have a low view of sin as followers of Jesus. Sin has to be horrendous to us. John Piper tells of how far we've come in our view of sin when he quotes a Catholic researcher named William Kilpatrick. This is Piper quoting Kilpatrick. One of the most destructive consequences of carelessly mixing therapy with faith is a diminished sense of sin. The best evidence that this has already happened in the Catholic Church 
again, don't point fingers at the Catholics, internalize this, if you will, is the tremendous drop-off in the practice of confession of the last 30 years. When we couple this, he continues to say, with the nearly 100% communion turnout in most parishes, we have to conclude that most parishioners don't have a strong consciousness of sin. They seem to have been so schooled in the gospel of self-acceptance that they can't think of any sins they need to confess. Now get that picture. Priests are sitting in confession waiting for people to come. Nobody's coming. When it's time to have communion, man, everybody shows up. What's wrong with that? Now you don't have to confess to a priest to share in the table. But Christian, as we took this time this morning to prepare our hearts to come to this table, are you full of sin and hypocrisy and coming up here and partaking of the Lord's table? It's not a good idea, by the way. Piper would further point out this light attitude towards sin when he spoke of a college professor who asked his students to write an essay about a time when they wrestled with doing something wrong. The professor said the students struggled with the assignment because, quote, they couldn't think of a time when they did something wrong. It's almost laughable, almost. But how much of our daily lives is actually blatant sin? What do we entertain ourselves with? What and how do we eat? How do we earn our pay? What are we grumbling about to ourselves about our spouse or our kids or our church structure or our church family? How dark is my heart? Church, we have to, as an application point, identify, confess, and repent of sin on an ongoing basis, a daily basis. John Owen said, I do not understand how a man can be a true believer in whom sin is not the greatest burden, sorrow, and trouble. And I know that you may be thinking, but I don't have to feel guilty for my sin because Jesus paid the penalty for it. My sin, oh the bliss of this glorious thought. My sin not in part but the whole was nailed to the cross and I bear it no more. Right? So how does that coincide with this. How can sin be a burden and a weight if all of our sins have been taken away? That's one of the hardest juxtapositions. That's one of the hardest things that we struggle with as Christians because this is, this is how it tunnels out. God sees no sin on me. True? I think Scripture is clear on that. I have been given the very righteousness of Christ. I have been placed in Christ and there can no sin be found in Christ ever. So I've been caused to be seated with Christ. Now, that's objective truth. My subjective experience is that day by day by day I fall short. Anybody else? So I don't have any sin, but I sin every day. That Wrestle with that for a minute. So what should we do with these sins that we commit? Brush them off? No big deal. Body took care of that. No. No. We see that we've been given the very righteousness of Christ, the very holiness of God, and sin grieves us. We're sorry that we chose the world over the holiness of God, over the glory of God. So we come to God and what does Scripture say? 1 John 1, 9. Any good Awanas out there? If we confess our sins, He is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. You say, wait a minute, I thought we were cleansed from all unrighteousness. We are. And it's also not saying that we've got to come to God and say, will you please forgive me of this sin? We come to God and we confess that sin. God, I confess. The Greek word is homo legeo, which means to say the same thing as, God, I see that I have committed this sin. You call it sin. I call it sin. I confess that to you. When we confess that, God is faithful and just and says, sin is gone. But we can't come with this lighthearted, oh, God today stole, robbed temples, committed adultery. Thanks, brother. Sin needs to be 
grief causing to us and we bring that grief to God and God gives us laughter for sadness. He gives us robes of righteousness for our dirty rags. If we're content to walk around in the dirty rags, listen, there is something wrong. It's true, you don't have to feel guilty for your sin, but it's also true that you have to confess your sin. And there's no doubt in my mind that if you have a glib attitude towards sin, you do not, as Amy Carmichael would say, know anything of Calvary love. Which leads me to the third application point. I cannot, you cannot, we cannot, and this is going to be hard. I cannot, you cannot, and we cannot lean on our status as a reason to either continue in sin or not seek holiness in our lives. What do I mean, what do I mean by that? The Jews in our passage today bragged on their bloodline. They bragged on their code of law and their position as teacher to feel pretty good about themselves. Now, do we not do the same? We develop an attitude that conveys itself as, well, I'm a Christian and I'm an American. America, America, God shed His grace on thee. And yes, indeed He did. But church, young people, our status as an American does us zero good in relation to our standing with God. There's not going to be a separate section of American saints in heaven where God says, guys, look at America. These guys were great. <laughs> it's interesting to note in relation to this that the yous in this section of Romans are all singular yous. It's not a plural you, which is saying all of you. It's saying you individually. Paul is not here condemning the Jewish race. He's pointing his finger squarely at individuals who think that the fact that they were born Jews meant anything in regards to salvation. Being born in America grants you no favor with God. And some of you are sitting thinking, well, that's silly. Why would you even say that? We've got some really warped thinking as Americans. I love this country. I believe it's the greatest country on the face of the earth. I've been to other places and I'm always glad to put my feet back on American soil. I think we've got the greatest political system in the world as warped and as messed up as it is by the people who are running it. I'm not saying I'm unpatriotic. I love America. But if I put my trust in being American to be right with God, there are people who do that. And it's not going to work. Growing up in a Christian home grants you no favor with God. Identifying yourself as Christian on a survey form because Muslim or Hindu just doesn't work grants you no favor with God. We, with these mindsets, put ourselves squarely in the place of the Jews in this passage, especially in our seemingly favored existence as American Christians. We who somewhere unconsciously think that persecution so unjust and unfair, especially if it infringes on our rights to free exercise of our religion and get our hair all messed up as a result of that, have a warped perception. Don't get me wrong. Our Constitution was designed to guarantee us religious freedom, but do we really think we can or should be exempt from being harassed and persecuted for our proclamation of truth in a world that hates truth? Are we so easily offended and knocked off course by a system that is led and bought by corrupt men and women who will do anything to obtain and retain their power? Listen to me. The words of Scripture are true for Christians in America. All who desire to live godly in Christ Jesus will suffer persecution in America, in China, in Canada. If you desire to live godly in Christ Jesus, you will suffer persecution. Listen, church, get and stay ready for that. Our pampered status as the church in America is at its end. 
And this is God's plan. Let that sink in for a second. And as painful as it is for us, God decries it even more. Why? Remember I said we'd get back to this point. Remember back when we talked about God saying His name was dishonored among the Gentiles as a result of His people's disobedience. Let's look at that worked out and we're almost done. If you have a Bible, turn to Ezekiel chapter 36. It's the last thing we're going to do. Ezekiel chapter 36. Why would God decry His people being persecuted? might be different than you think. Ezekiel 36, starting in verse 16. Ezekiel 36, 16. The prophet says, The word of the Lord came to me. Son of man, when the house of Israel lived in their own land, they defiled it by their ways and their deeds. Their ways before me were like the uncleanness of a woman and her menstrual impurity. So I poured out my wrath upon them for the blood that they had shed in the land, for the idols with which they had defiled it. I scattered them among the nations, and they were dispersed through the countries. In accordance with their ways and their deeds, I judged them. But when they came to the nations, wherever they came, they profaned my holy name, in that people said of them, These are the people of the Lord. And yet they had to go out of His land. Verse 21. But I had concern for my holy name, which the house of Israel had profaned among the nations to which they came. What's God's concern here? That His people were being persecuted? Nope. Look at 21 again. But I had concern for my holy name, which the house of Israel had profaned among the nations to which they came. Now get this picture. God planted His people in a land. God planted His people where they would be prominent among the nations so that they would live out a life that showed the beauty and the glory of God. And they disobeyed Him. They did their own thing. They sought their own comfort. And they didn't glorify God. So God punished them. And God is not here saying, Oh, the nations were just too hard on my people. Oh, they shouldn't have been so mean to my people. God's saying, My name was defamed as I had to punish my people. Because the nation said, these are the people of God? And they can't stay in the land that God gave them? What kind of God is that? And God's concern was for His name, not their pain. And this passage keeps with a pattern that's similar to what we've seen a couple of times today. God blesses His people. His people sin. God disciplines His people. In the process of being disciplined, God's people look like the dregs of humanity. And the surrounding nations point and say, Ew, their God must either be fake or really mean. I don't want their God. And what's the root cause of this misrepresentation of God? It's not God's punishment, but the sin of the people of God. God values His glory and His holiness too much to not discipline His people if they stray from His holiness. And God does not just slap a hand. To quote Herb Hodges, if you can sin and God does not take you behind the woodshed and beat the hell out of you, you are not His child. Here, God disciplines His children thoroughly. And then look at the reaction of the nations. Verse 20, Ezekiel 36. But when they came to the nations, wherever they came, they profaned My holy name. And that people said of them, These are the people of the Lord, and yet they had to go out of His land. The nations said, These are God's people? Then why did they have to leave the land that God gave them? It's a mocking, irreverent, blasphemous jab. And it's caused not by God's discipline, but by the sins of God's people who brought that discipline to be. Now I'm going to ask you as we close, do you see the connection? 
We are the ones who are supposed to make God beautiful in the sight of the nations. But it's the church, the church, that people point to and say, they are the reason I don't want anything to do with God. How many times have you heard the church is just full of hypocrites? So's Walmart. You've heard that too many times, haven't you? The church is just full of hypocrites. That's why I don't go to church. Sometimes it's just an excuse, but sometimes I'm afraid it's all too valid. Are you a hypocrite? Do you teach and preach one thing, but do another? If you do, confess that and repent. The warning of 1 Peter 4.17 is fitting here. For it is time for judgment to begin at the household of God. And if it begins with us, what will be the outcome for those who do not obey the gospel of God? We have to be the ones who are corrected by the Word of God and by each other so that we might live in a way that glorifies God. Paul hammered the Roman Jews and said, you were supposed to teach people about God, but your lives make Him look disgusting. Would He say that to me today? Would He say that to you today? Would He say that about us today? For as it is written, the name of God is blasphemed among the Gentiles because of Oh, God, may it never be that your name is blasphemed among unbelievers because of me. Let me wrap this up and call each of us, every one of us, to action and accountability. John MacArthur said, You do somebody a tremendous favor by telling them that what they have their security in is not secure, if that's the case. If you are here this morning and have put your security in the fact that you're an American or that you're a, air quote, Christian, put your faith in Jesus and have true security. Trust Him for the forgiveness you need and know that He is your only hope. If you've already trusted Christ but have developed an air of superiority, seeing sin in everyone but yourself, confess your arrogance and humbly acknowledge your helplessness and proneness to sin and fail, knowing that the blood of Jesus is sufficient to both cover and overcome your sins. As believers, we have to be the first to recognize our sins. We have to be the first to confess them, and we have to forsake them. And we must be those, listen to me as clearly as I can say this, we must be those, as we recognize our sins, who remove those logs out of our own eyes so that we can help remove the speck from our brother's eyes. And then we can be doers of the Word, not just those who have, read, or even study the Bible. And then we can become what we're supposed to be. We are supposed to be teachers who teach the outside world who God is, what He is like, so that they can come to know and love and treasure Him the way that they should. With Christ, not the world, as our standard, and with our trust in the righteousness of Christ Himself, we will ever be reliant upon the power of the gospel to purify and empower us, and we will fulfill our God-given mission to make Him known through our words and through our lives. May it be so, so that His name is not blasphemed among the nations on account of us. Let's pray. God, again, I ask that you would tear down false securities. I pray that you would convict us individually and corporately of our sin and of our sins so that we might confess those sins and repent of them, forsake them, and live the way that you've called us to live. And we can do that because you have placed your Holy Spirit within us. And God, if we feel no conviction over sin, if we can't put our fingers on a time when we're sure that we did something wrong, God, break us in half.
show us our sinfulness, yes, and show us the sufficiency of the sacrifice of Christ to take care of those sins and to live in such a way, God, we have sufficiency to live in such a way that the nations see our good works and glorify you. That's what you have designed us for. May we never, ever, ever be the reason that the nations point and say their God is disgusting because of what they do. My hope is built on nothing less than Jesus' blood and righteousness. I dare not trust the sweetest frame, but wholly lean on Jesus' name. May that be true of every person in this building this morning. We trust you. In Jesus' name, amen. Stay and eat with us. Have a great day. Have a great week. Love you guys.